The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning. We want to welcome you to our worship service this Sunday morning. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. And so today our service will recognize the significance and importance of Memorial Day. Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day and is a day of remembrance for those who have given their life in our nation's service in order that we might enjoy the freedom that we have and that we are enjoying this morning to gather together and to freely teach the Word of God and to worship God. There are many stories as to how Memorial Day actually began. Over two dozen cities and towns lay claim to being the birthplace of Memorial Day. There's also evidence that organized women's groups in the South were decorating graves before the end of the war between the states. A hymn published in 1867 entitled, Kneel Where Our Loves Are Sleeping by Nella L. Sweet, carried the dedication to the ladies of the South who were decorating the graves of the Confederate dead. This is why Memorial Day was originally referred to as Decoration Day. In 1966, Waterloo, New York was officially recognized as the birthplace of Memorial Day by President Lyndon Johnson. It's difficult to prove conclusively the origins of the day. It's likely that it had many separate beginnings both in the North and in the South. It was officially proclaimed on the 5th of May in 1868 by General John Logan, who was the national commander of the Grand Army of the Republic. It was first observed on the 30th of May in 1868 when flowers were placed on the graves of Union and Confederate soldiers at Arlington National Cemetery. The first state to officially recognize the holiday was New York in 1873. By 1890, it was recognized by all of the northern states, but of course the South refused to acknowledge the day, honoring their dead on separate days until after World War I, when the holiday changed from honoring the, those who gave their lives during the Civil War to those who had died fighting in any war to preserve the freedoms of the United States. It is now celebrated in almost every state on the last Monday in May, which was set by Congress an official act in 1971 to establish a three-day weekend, of course. In the South, southern states still honor their Confederate dead on separate days. Here in Texas, that's done on January the 19th. This morning our scripture reading is again from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a praise of the value, the importance, the significance of the Word of God in our life. As the psalmist wrote this, he thinks about how it is only the Word of God, the testimonies of God, it is the law of God that provides strength and sustenance and protection for us. So as we read through this, beginning in verse 129, excuse me, beginning in verse uh, 121, follow along with me. Psalm 119, verses 121 through 128. I've done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to your oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. 
This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to take a few moments to make sure that we are in fellowship, a few moments to make sure that we're ready to focus and concentrate on teaching of God's Word, to allow God the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us to fill us with His Word, to illuminate our thinking to the truth of His Word, and to show how that applies in each of our lives. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it is indeed a tremendous privilege that we have to gather together freely this morning to worship you, to sing praises to your name, to honor you through the teaching of your word that we might learn how to think as you would have us to think. Father, we thank you that you have made it possible for us to live in this nation, a nation of freedom, a nation that was established by many believers in Uh, centuries past who understood the truths of your word and let that impact their understanding of society and law and politics. Father, we thank you for the freedoms that we have guaranteed in the laws of this nation. Above all, we thank you for those men and women who have been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice down through the decades to pay for our freedom that they were willing to serve this nation and to give their lives that we might enjoy the freedoms that we have today. Father, and that leads us even further to think about our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross that we might have eternal life. And it is because of him and because of what he has done for us that we realize that, that we have been saved and delivered for a purpose and that we are to be sanctified by the teaching of your word, through the study of your word, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, may we be challenged by it. May we have our thinking transformed, that we may not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in the book of Revelation, and we are in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, this is the sixth of the seven evaluation reports that the Lord Jesus Christ has written for these congregations in what is now modern Turkey, but was then the Roman province of Asia. Each of these evaluation reports has certain elements in common. They each begin with a commission. This particular one is addressed to the Church of Philadelphia. The Church of Philadelphia, as we studied before, was established as an outpost of Greek culture, and part of their mission, part of the reason that city was founded, was to be a missionary, an evangelist, as it were, for the Greek culture in the uh, second century B.C. There is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ here as in the other evaluation reports which we have studied the last couple of weeks and here it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who uh, one who is holy, the one who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. 
Then this is followed by a commendation, a commendation of that which the congregation is doing well. Not all of these short evaluation reports have a commendation. Two of them do not. This is one that has no condemnation, which is the uh, next element, a warning about some spiritual flaw within the congregation that is absent from two of these evaluation reports, one of which is the Church of Philadelphia. Fifth, there is a prescription or a, a recipe for recovery. Again, that is missing since there's no condemnation. Then there is a call to listen and to apply the message of the evaluation report. Each of these evaluation reports were carried together to each of these congregations, so you not only had the opportunity to read what the Lord Jesus Christ had provided, uh, how he had evaluated your own congregation, but you also got a chance to see how he evaluated uh, the other congregations as well. And they were all exhorted to learn from each one of them and to apply the lessons to their own congregations and the individual spiritual lives of their members. There is a challenge in each of these to the overcomer, a personal promise of reward to those believers who press on to spiritual maturity. Revelation 3.7 begins to the angel of the church at Philadelphia. Then we have our reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Two of his attributes are emphasized, his holiness and his veracity. He who is holy, he who is true. And then there is a citation from Isaiah uh, that emphasizes his messianic role. This is particularly important as we've seen the last couple of weeks because in Philadelphia there were apparently a group of Jews a synagogue of Jews that were in opposition to Christianity. They had rejected the claims of Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and so they were engaged in persecuting the Christians that were there and, in fact, involving the local government in hostility against the Christians that were in Philadelphia. But Jesus promises here that he is the one who has the key of David, that is, the that key that... It provides entry into the kingdom. This is the same claim of exclusivity that we find down through the scriptures. Jesus saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. This is a claim that always rubs the non-Christian in a wrong way. They always get irritated and aggravated with Christians who claim to have the only source of truth and to know the only way God And, of course, we see examples of that on a day-to-day basis. Almost daily now we see some sort of uh, special related to the Da Vinci Code or some other uh, thing that's coming up today that seeks to, to uh, demonstrate that Jesus really wasn't God. He really didn't make those claims. We really don't know what Jesus said or whatever the allegation is. But it, all of these are attempts to avoid the clear statements of scripture that Jesus Christ was full humanity and undiminished deity united in one person forever for the purpose of going to the cross and paying the penalty for our sins that we can have eternal life. These in Philadelphia understood that and they are praised for their spiritual advance in verse 8. Verse 8 is pregnant with significance. Our Lord begins by saying, I know your works. And the Greek verb that he uses for know here indicates that he is a complete and detailed knowledge of all of the production in that congregation. Nothing escapes his notice. He knows all the good, all the bad. He knows the thoughts. He knows the motives. He knows everything about every single congregation. And because he was also fully man, and tested in all points as we are yet without sin, he is the one who has been delegated the judicial responsibilities from God the Father so that we are judged and evaluated by a peer, someone that knows everything that we've gone through because he indeed is true humanity. And therefore, when he stands as the one who evaluates and judges us, we're not going to be standing uh, standing before someone Uh, that we can uh, uh, confuse, that we can somehow rationalize our disobedience. 
He is one who can say, I was there, I have gone through it as a human being, and I know exactly what you went through. Your failure is to trust me, to trust, fully trust my word. Now, in this evaluation report, he begins by saying, I know your works, but then there is a, there's a break in what he is saying. And we get this sense of, of emo, almost emotional intensity here because there's this break and rather than going straight into the evaluation statement, which usually includes a list of things uh, for which the congregation is praised, he interrupts the normal flow that we've seen in the last five evaluation reports, and he gives this note of encouragement that begins with that statement you see in the overhead C or in the uh, original is, Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no no one uh, can shut it. Now, if we were to take a look at how this is structured. It's very important as we go through this particular epistle to look at the way the Greek has structured things because it's easy to miss the flow of what the Lord is saying due to the way it's been, uh, it's been translated. Learn a lot about translation theory at different times and the idiosyncrasies of different translations. But what we see here is a parenthesis. So I've set it apart. And I have put the words in yellow so that you can uh, track the main thought in the verse. The main thought is, I know your works. And then as you notice, the New King James and some other translations uh, translate it uh, after the parenthesis, uh, for or because you have a little strength. As you notice, I put a red line through the for. You have a little Greek particle there called hati. And hati can be translated three different ways. It can be translated as that, uh, which indicates a fuller explanation of something, or it can be translated for or because, indicating that it's giving a a causal uh, statement or an ex, uh, explanation of why an event has taken place. A uh, number of translations take it as causal here, which would mean I know your works, that I've set before you an open door because you have a little strength. In other words, the cause for setting before them an open door is because they had, uh, they were, uh, they seemed insignificant in their numbers and because they have kept my word and because they have not denied my name. The problem with that is that in each of these other evaluation reports, each one begins with this phrase, I know your works. And then the specifics of that production are listed following a use of this little Greek word, hati. So it always begins, I know your works, hati. And then following the hati clause, or following the hati, we have the list of the production in that particular congregation. So what we have here in order to show, in order to have consistency, is a parenthetical insertion here where the Lord Jesus Christ says, I know your work. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. And then he returns to listing those uh, works that are evident in the life of this congregation. And what's important here is this parenthetical statement. Behold, I have given, or I have given before you, literally, not set before as it's said in some translations. The Greek, the Greek word there means to give. It's not a Hebrew idiom as some have taken it, but it indicates God's grace in providing opportunities to this congregation related to evangelism and related to missions. He says, I have given to you or given before you an open door and no one can shut it. The opportunities for evangelism The opportunities for outreach into the unbelieving community in Philadelphia and beyond was something that was considered a grace gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. It may have been a reward for their obedience and their maturity that despite the fact that they were small in number, they were a congregation that had been steadfast in their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they had matured in their spiritual life and matured in their spiritual growth so that they had reached a stage where they had a mature love 
for the Lord Jesus Christ. This comes out in the second part of the verse. We know that this phrase, opening the door, is an idiom that indicates evangelistic opportunity because of the way that it is used in other passages in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 14.27 we read, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported, this would be Paul and Barnabas, they had reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16.9, For a wide, Paul says, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. First, our Second Corinthians chapter two, verse twelve. He says, "Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, this opening of the door is an idiom for opportunity. So it is a an idiom indicating that God provides the opportunities for evangelism and to explain the gospel to those." Who are lost. Colossians 4, verse 3, Paul says, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. Opening the door then is opportunity. Now, one other note on Colossians 4, 3, this is what Paul is requesting of his readers, that, we, that they pray for him, as he seeks to carry the gospel to those who are lost in Rome, that we pray that they have that he have opportunity. The application of that is that even today we have missionaries that go out throughout the world, and this is one of the things we should pray for: is that God would give them opportunities, God would open doors for them, that they would be able to penetrate the cultures they are seeking to penetrate with the gospel. As we look at this verse, we read, I know your works, that is, I know your production. I know the sum total of your works, both that which has eternal value and that which it does not. See, I have set before you an open door. I've given you opportunity. No one can shut it. This is an ongoing opportunity. The tense of the verb there, I give before you an open door, is a perfect tense, indicating it's an action that has been completed in the past, and the emphasis is on the ongoing result of that past action. So there is an ongoing opportunity for the congregation of Philadelphia to be involved in evangelism in the culture around them, as well as missionary outreach. He goes on to say, for you have a little strength. And what that means essentially is that they were apparently insignificant. They were small in number. But there was something else about them that despite the fact that they were a apparently small congregation and would not have much, uh, would not uh, appear to have much impact from the eyes of the culture around them because of their, their size or their numbers, they were spiritually strong. They might have been uh, numerically numerically weak, but they were spiritually strong, for he says that you have kept my word. Now, in John's vocabulary, this is a phrase that is just loaded with meaning. We read that and we think that all this is saying is that, well, you have been obedient and that's the end of it. But if we go back to the Gospel of John, this is a phrase that the Lord Jesus Christ used numerous times as he was communicating to his disciples. It's a phrase that John himself picked up from the Lord Jesus Christ and utilized it in, uh, several times in his first epistle in First John. So let me just take you back to some of these passages. John chapter 14, we have four different uses related to the this phrase, keeping my word. Now, let me say, remind you a little bit about the context of John 14. John 14 is part of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse is the last lengthy teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples before he went to the cross. In John chapter 13, they gathered together to celebrate the Lord's table. This is when he had his conversation with Peter about washing his feet. 
And then following that, he goes on in John chapter 14 to begin to teach and instruct the disciples related to church age doctrine. And he begins to teach them about uh, their responsibilities and obligations as apostles in the coming age. And he begins to teach them about the coming of God the Holy Spirit. In the midst of this, he is expounding upon the great commandment that he gave at the end of John chapter 13, that we should love one another even as Christ loved us. And so there is much that he says in the next few chapters related to love. John chapter 14, verse 15, he talks about our love for him. Now, there's many believers who are indeed grateful that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. And in that gratitude, they have the beginnings of a love for their Savior and for God the Father. But just as your brand new baby learns to love you as they grow older, so the new baby believer learns and grows in his love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for God the Father. That love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for God the Father is not measured by feeling or emotion or sentiment. It's unfortunate that we live in an era today when uh, modern Americans define love in terms of subjective impression and subjective feeling. And people sing songs about, oh, how I love Jesus, and they are overwhelmed with emotion and sentiment, but they don't understand what the Word of God teaches about how the love for the Lord Jesus Christ is measured. We see this in John chapter 14. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, the measure of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is not defined by uh, the warmth of appreciation which wells up within us as we think about our salvation. That is true and that's good, but that's not what the Scriptures are talking about when it talks about loving the Lord. Jesus says we have an objective Barometer for measuring our love for Him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about what our spiritual life entails after salvation as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John 14, 21, he goes on to expand on this and says, He who has my commandments, that is the Word of God, he uses the word commandment here as a, as a synonym, summarizing all of the positive commands and negative uh, prohibitions in the word. He who has my command, commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. One of the things I think that we see in this verse is a progressive knowledge of, of who Jesus is and who the Father is that comes as a result of our knowledge of the Word of God and our application of the Word of God. It's not enough just to know the Word of God and to have notebooks filled with notes and file cabinets filled with, with uh, files of notes about the Word of God. It is what goes into our soul and becomes a part of our life, resulting in a change of thinking, Romans 12:2, having our thought transformed so that it changes the way we think about life and the way we interact with those around us, the way we interact with our Lord. So that Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And clearly assuming that there are going to be believers who know the commandments but don't keep them. They're not demonstrating a love for Him. So He says, He who loves me, how do we love Him? By learning his word, keeping his commandments. See, you can't apply what you don't know. And you can't know something unless you take the time and the discipline to study it, to learn it, to be taught the word. As Jesus prayed to the Father at the end of this uh, night in what is called the high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. This is why we emphasize the teaching of God's Word because the change agent in our life along with the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate apart from the Word of God and the Word of God doesn't 
uh, produce fruit apart from God the Holy Spirit. They work together in tandem. But we must know the Word of God that when the chips are down, when life is tough, when we, we lose friends, when we go through marital difficulty, when our children are going through rebellious stages, when we're having to deal with parents who are going through uh, health crises, and uh, we go through financial crises, or we go through any other kind of adversity, the only thing that gets us through, that focuses our thinking, stabilizes our emotions, and gives us the right perspective for understanding how to deal with life is the Word of God. It's great to know hymns, and there are hymns uh, that we sing, that we know, that give us great comfort because they reflect the doctrine that's in the Word of God. But when you really go through those dark times of life, what gets you through is not your good friends. It's not fellowship. When you're alone at night and you're in your bed and you're having to face the crises that you're facing, the only thing that comforts and stabilizes is the Word of God. So we have to know the Word of God. And we're told that if, as we learn it and obey it, there is this progressive understanding of the Father that comes to us. That Jesus says that the person who loves me by keeping my commandments will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. As you grow in the knowledge of the Word, Jesus Christ will reveal more and more of himself to you. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus goes on and says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And here's that word related to the Greek verb uh, meno, to abide, that emphasizes that rich, intimate fellowship that the believer can have with the Father. And as we learn his word and apply his word, there is a development of a capacity of love for God the Father, and as a result of that, uh, we have a richer fellowship with the Father and the Son. In John fourteen twenty four, we read, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In John fifteen ten, after they left the upper room and they're on their way to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has the discourse on the vine. And as he concludes that, he again restates this principle. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, abiding is related to intimate fellowship with the Father, and it's related to uh, walking in and, and living our life in obedience to the Word of God. In John 15:20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. Then we see a commentary on this upper room teaching in the first epistle of John. It is my belief, having taught through both the Gospels and the epistles of John, that the first epistle of John is John's mature reflection on what Jesus taught on that night in the upper room and afterwards. The vocabulary overlaps. The terminology is very similar. The themes are the same. But what John does since he is in his probably late 80s or early 90s by the time he wrote uh, the, the uh, first epistle, he is reflecting on all that he has learned since he was a young man and Jesus first taught what he heard in that upper room. First John 2, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, there are a lot of people who misunderstand what this verse says. And that's usually because we're products of the sloppy vocabulary of, of 20th century evangelicalism. See, we often come up to people and we're talking to people and we want to know if they're saved. So rather than asking, are you saved? We say, do you know Jesus? And we take this phrase, knowing Jesus, as a synonym for having trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so then we take that 
wrong definition of knowing Jesus as, and make it, making it apply to uh, salvation, we read it into this verse and misinterpret the verse. We, the wrong interpretation would, would be, read something like this. By this we know that we have come to be saved if we keep His commandments. So that keeping His commandments then becomes the barometer for how we know if we're saved. But you see, the reason you know that you're saved is because of the promise of God in the Scriptures that He who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has eternal life. There is an assurance of salvation that comes through the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit who bears witness to our spirit that we have become the children of God according to Romans chapter 8. In fact, what we see in 1 John 2.3 is the same kind of vocabulary, the same verb tenses that occurred in a conversation that Jesus had with Philip back in John chapter 14, which we just left. John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is the chapter that, uh, that begins, In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And following that, uh, Peter said, well, how do we get there? And in that conversation as it develops, Philip says, well, how do we, uh, uh, who are you? And how do we know that you reveal God to us? And the Lord Jesus Christ turns to him and says, Philip, how long have I been with you and you don't know me? Now, if knowing Jesus equals being saved, then what Jesus just said would be imply that Philip wasn't saved. But that would contradict John chapter 13. John chapter 13, when Jesus is washing their feet and he has this little uh, cor- moment of correction with, with Peter, in that chapter, in that conversation, Jesus says, all of you are clean except one. Now that phrase, all of you are clean, indicates that all of them have been cleansed from their sin. This is what happened at the time that they put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. But the one who was not cleansed would be Judas Iscariot, who is told in a few verses to leave the room. So once Judas left, the other 11 disciples remain, and those 11, according to Jesus' own words, are all clean. They are all saved. So if in John 13 Philip is saved, then Philip can't lose his salvation at all and he wouldn't lose it that quickly if he could. So when Jesus says, how long have I been with you Philip and you don't know me? He's not saying that Philip isn't saved. He's saying that Philip hasn't grown much beyond his salvation. He hasn't come to understand who Jesus Christ is. See, When we get saved, we don't really know very much about Jesus. We know that He is the God-man who died on the cross for our sins, and that if we trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. But that is just a small amount of information compared to all the information that's given in the Scripture that we can learn about our Lord Jesus Christ. And that comes after we're saved. It's the process of growth. So in 1 John... 2, 3, John is saying, this is how we know that we have come to know Him. That is, how, this is how we can measure our advance to spiritual maturity. See, spiritual maturity isn't based just on what you know. But you can't have spiritual maturity in ignorance. We have to know the Word of God before we can apply the Word of God. And knowledge of the Word of God plus application of the Word of God leads to spiritual growth and the child of God. So in 1 John 2, 3, Jesus, uh, John says, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. He goes on to say in verse 4, The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. doesn't say he's a liar and he's not saved. It says he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. He is saved, but he is an immature baby believer. Verse 5, John goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God. And there that should be understood is what Greek grammarians call an objective genitive. In him the love for God, 
That's what we're talking about in the context. The love for God has truly been what? Not perfected in the sense of becoming flawless, but it's our familiar word, teleo, meaning to be brought to maturity. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love for God has truly been completed or matured. By this we know that we are in him. And for John, being in him is related to abiding in him, that is, fellowship. By this we know that we are experiencing that rich, deep fellowship and growth that comes by our intimate post-salvation relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord is praising them. He says, I know your works, and then we have our parenthesis, which we'll come back to in a minute. I know your works, that you have a little strength. Physically, overtly, you seem inconsequential. But you have kept my word. That keeping my word indicates that they are mature believers. They may be strong, they may be weak in numbers, but they are strong spiritually, for they have learned to love God by keeping his word. And it is the mature believer who who has spent time in the word and built that relationship with him to grow to maturity. They have kept his word and they have not denied my name. Denying Jesus' name is an idiom for rejection of Christianity and biblical truth. The implication here is that, yes, as a believer, you can deny Jesus. You can turn your back on the Word, and you can indeed become involved in extended carnality. This is the warning that we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy, therefore I, or reminds Timothy, therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, obtaining the salvation is not, again, gaining eternal life. See, this is, the word salvation is another one of those words that we have uh, taken, reduced its significance in American evangelicalism so that when we hear the word saved, we always think about uh, entering into heaven or having the qualifications to enter into heaven, what Paul calls justification by faith. But for the most part, the word saved or sozo in the Greek has the idea of that full realization of salvation once we enter into heaven. Sometimes it refers to uh, being saved from the uh, power of sin in our ongoing spiritual life. Uh, more frequently, the word salvation has the idea of the ultimate realization of everything and uh, being saved from the presence of the sin nature when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. But too often today when people want to know if someone else is going to go to heaven, if they trusted Christ as their Savior, they'll say, well, are you saved? And so we tend to limit the meaning of this word saved. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that they may obtain justification. They're already justified. But that they might obtain salvation, that is, the, all of the rewards and uh, blessings that God has for the believer that advances to spiritual maturity. In verse 11, he quotes from what many think it was a popular hymn of that time or a well-known statement that summarized and categorized and much of what the New Testament teaches. He says, this is a faithful saying. The first thing, the first clause in verse 11 says, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. This is a reference to what is termed by theologians positional truth. Romans chapter 6 Verse 3, that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at that instant, in an act called baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Jesus Christ in his death. That's the significance of the meaning of baptism. It's not just getting wet. It is has its significance in identification. For it, and at, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that is when the Holy Spirit identifies us, 
with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross so that his death is our death and that that death of Christ is what frees us from the tyranny of the sin nature as Paul argues in Romans chapter 6. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. That is, if we trusted Christ as Savior so that we were identified with his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, thus having justification. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. We shall have eternal life. You have eternal life the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone. But once you have this new life, the next, the next issue is what are you going to do with this new life? Are you going to just stay a spiritual infant, a spiritual baby, or are you going to press on to spiritual maturity and spiritual adulthood? I want you to think back when you were probably about 10 or 11 or 12 years of age, You probably got involved in some sort of argument with your parents because you wanted to do something and they didn't want you to do it. And in frustration you said, why won't you let me treat me like an adult? Because you realize when you were 10, 11, or 12 that real life begins when you're an adult. Life, real life isn't when you're a child and under the authority of your parents where you have to do everything the way they want you to do it. But real life begins once you have grown to maturity and you can then engage all the things that are going on in the world on your own as an individual person no longer under the authority of your parents. Well, the same thing is true in the Christian life. We're born as spiritual babies. But real, the, the real benefits, the real depth and quality of that eternal life that Jesus offers us, that abundant life, when Jesus says, I came not like a thief to steal and destroy, but to give you life and to give it abundantly, that abundant life comes with spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. The problem is most Christians are just satisfied getting into heaven, and they don't understand that that. There's more to the gospel than just getting into heaven when they die. There is a richness and a fullness of life today that comes only as a result of your growth and maturity in the spiritual life. And if you don't spend the time studying the Word of God and letting God the Holy Spirit transform you into the character of Christ, then you never develop that capacity for life that the Lord has for us. And only with that mature capacity of life are we then able to truly glorify him in every area of our life so Paul goes on to say if we endure that's the post salvation growth if we endure we shall also reign with him the implication is that if you don't endure you won't reign but are you still saved yes you are If we endure, we shall also reign with him, because reigning with him is part of the reward package that the faithful believer receives at the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 describes the judgment seat of Christ, that as believers we're going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ, and all of our works, all of our production is going to be piled up, and then the Lord Jesus Christ is going to Reveal what has eternal value. And the imagery there is that all of our production is set on fire, and that which was produced from our own flesh, from our own sin nature, from our own independent humanity is going to be burned up as wood, hay, and straw. But that which is produced through the work of God the Holy Spirit in our life is going to be purified. And so what is left is pictured as gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, that's not the reward. Some people confuse that. That's not the reward. That is, that's the divine good that's produced in our life as a result of walking by God the Holy Spirit. And it is on the basis of that that, God, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ will give us our rewards. And part of that reward is to reign with him. We are developing today the capacity to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom as kings and priests. So Second Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. That couplet must be taken together. The denial here 
In the first phrase, if we deny him, that is, if you deny him his place as the authority in your life, it's not that he will deny you salvation. He will deny you the ability to reign with him. It's in parallelism to the previous clause. If we deny him, if you spend your life focused on uh, the details of life and seeking happiness apart from the Lord, not putting the Word of God first as a priority in your life and your relationship to the Lord, then he will deny you the privilege and the responsibilities that you could have had if you had only trusted the Lord and grown to spiritual maturity. 2 Timothy 2.13, he says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, you can't make that clause, if we deny him, relate to uh, the loss of salvation because the next phrase contradicts that. it, It says, If we are faithless, that is, if we don't trust him, if we don't grow, if we don't go anywhere, but he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. He remains faithful to his promise to save us. And that's what happens to many believers at the judgment seat of Christ. After that evaluation and all of their works are immolated there and nothing is left, the text says, but they shall enter into heaven yet as through fire. They don't lose their salvation. They just lose their rewards and they lose the potential of serving the Lord in the millennial kingdom. So what the Lord Jesus Christ is reminding the church of Philadelphia of is that they have produced works that have eternal value. They have little in terms of human strength. They're small in number. They don't seem very impressive, but they have kept the Lord's word. They have grown to spiritual maturity. They're demonstrating that they love the Lord by keeping his commandments. And they have not denied him so therefore there is a place of privilege to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ now I skipped over that parenthesis and we'll come back to it next time where the Lord says I have set before you an open door this relates to missions and as a young church we don't have a formal missions policy yet but we need to develop that and develop our understanding and challenge for missions and so we'll develop that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged and strengthened by what the Lord Jesus Christ said to this church in Philadelphia. They're encouraged because they have been faithful to you. They have made the study of your word the number one priority in their life, and they have applied that consistently so that they have grown in their capacity to uh, love you and that as a result of that, they have grown to uh, spiritual maturity, developed capacity for life, that they may uh, be able to rule and reign wisely with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain about their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Scripture makes it very clear that all that is required for eternal life is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of joining a church or going through religious ritual. It's not a matter of moral reformation of the life. It is simply a matter of trusting in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, paid the penalty for every single sin that we commit in history. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with your word, that we might not become satisfied with just growing a little bit, but we might desire to press on to maturity, to realize the fullness of life that you've promised us, that we might glorify you, and that in turn that we might be able to serve you more richly in the coming kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.